The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, January 23rd, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And I'm torn. I'm torn because I have a daily news show. This one, in fact. And inarguably, the most important news story is what is going on in the Senate. The president has been impeached and he might be removed. Only, you may have gleaned as part of the gist's ongoing coverage of the impeachment trial and very likely acquittal of Donald J. Trump, it's pretty clear he won't be removed. Which argues against the notion of newsiness, as does this fact. There is nothing new. There are new depths of deception and tendentiousness that the Republicans are plumbing. But every argument put forth by a suit-wearing Jay Sekulow or Pat Cipollone has already been voiced by Jim Jordan in shirt sleeves or phrased slower and stupider by Doug Collins. Seemingly dominating this is irregardless of what anybody in this community... It's not new. It's not news. It is long. It is expected. It is known. It has been argued and, to my mind, proved extensively. I don't resent the Democrats for going through this and really trying to prove it thoroughly. But as far as the definition of news or anything that actually can hold my interest, I don't know if it meets the definition. And by the way, I'm just talking about the good side of the argument. The other side is frivolous and obfuscatory. You know, I don't mind contentious as long as it's not tendentious, but ponderous and tedious to that I am allergic. If I were forced to abide by the rules of the Senate, I don't think I could do it. 12 plus hours of just sitting there, no access to phones or Blackberries or computers or any outside contact. And by Blackberries, I actually mean Blackberries. Snacks are limited. Beverages, nothing other than milk and water. No leaving. Here is a description of the senator's actions from CNN.com. Senator Rand Paul spent time doodling what looked like a Capitol building. Senator Ben Sass peeled a clementine and ate it. Senator Tom Cotton flipped a purple fidget spinner on his desk as other GOP senators watched. Like kittens or children, I suppose. Gosh, if you are Adam Schiff losing mindshare to a fidget spinner, well, to be fair, it was purple. Senator Elizabeth Warren was seen stretching her neck, taking off her glasses, and massaging the bridge of her nose before putting them back on. Dick Durbin leaned across an empty seat to whisper something to Chuck Schumer. Senator Richard Burr downed half a glass of milk on the Senate floor, while another half-full glass of milk was spotted on Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin's desk. She was not observed drinking it, however. Tammy Baldwin not observed drinking it. By the way, CNN called that drink a half-full glass of milk. Fox called it half-empty and full of uranium. I could not sit there for 12 hours and listen or pretend to listen. And I know this. I could prove that that is true because I have the internet and TV, which offers me the opportunity to sit there for, I don't know, 12 minutes and listen to it. And I can't take it. And I get access to coffee. There's a lot of talk about how senators need to do their job and sit there and listen and not leave and don't have coffee. I, th- I think there are a few things I could do as a senator. I could give speeches. I could participate in debates. I'd be pretty good at that. I would probably back good policy. I would be okay in TV ads. I definitely could hit donors up for money. Here are a couple of things about being a senator that I'm not sure I could do. Um, Actually get the money from the people I hit up. 
get a majority of any constituency to want to vote for me. Not really sure of that. But I am certain, and I am not kidding, that I could not do this, what the senators are doing. It's not that I have a short attention span. It's that I live in 2020, and therefore I have an exceedingly short attention span. I think... You could probably, if you knew you had to do this, you know, weeks or years in the future, you could probably work on it. You could probably read a book or take a course or learn some meditation or consult a yogi and literally work on the skill of concentration. It's a skill. But three days ago, all of these senators were busy texting and fundraising and being hustled from interview to interview and having staff fly around them and themselves flying in the shuttle back and forth and sometimes going to campaign in Iowa. And to go from that To this, to slam on the brakes at 100 miles an hour, it is very hard. Someone asked me, yeah, but Mike, haven't you been on jury duty? Sure. Jury duty is interesting. You haven't heard the evidence before. It is a unique circumstance where the stances of the other jurors aren't already on the record. Maybe in the 1800s when people listened to public oration for six hours at a time, would this level of concentration be possible? Today, it is very, very hard. And I feel sorry for the senators, and I feel especially sorriest for those minority of senators who don't deserve this torture because they don't have closed minds and ulterior motives. Like I said, the minority of them. On the show today, I spiel about that mastermind of slowdown, the top turtle of turgidness, the source of the somnolence himself. It's Mitch. But first, Will Self is a great writer and a novelist who wrote about himself in his latest book, a memoir called Will. He is here to talk about his memories and the rules, if you will, not upon the rules that he used in conveying to us what his memories were of a time 30 years ago when he was heavily using drugs, by the way. I would say this was a really great interview between me and Will Self. And if I had to put a finger on what made it great, I would say it's Will Self. And here he is up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
I came to know Will Self, not through his writing, he's written 11 novels, five collections of shorter fiction, three novellas, five collections of nonfiction, but through his commentaries for the BBC, which I think may be too good for American ears. We just couldn't handle it. And from there, I moved to his writing. And now, as consumers of Selfinalia, we have his memoir. It's well-crafted. It's insightful. And it, called Will, is the antithesis of the classic arc that you often get. No, I had promised, but then I was laid low by substance abuse, but I found a purpose and I bounced back. No, no, no. It aggressively rebuts that structure. In fact, it jumps around during different months in the late 70s and early 80s, and it doesn't even go in chronological order. So I began by asking Will Self how he approached the structure of the thing. The first thing I did technically was to write about myself in the third person and the continuous present. And I was very struck by, you know, what Nietzsche writes in the genealogy of morals. He says, you know, memory says you did that. Pride says I can't have done that. The two contend and pride always wins. And I think that's very true. And I think those kind of tip beating memoirs where you say I used to be a teenage werewolf, but I'm all right now. I think that they are disingenuous at best. And they're actually a lot of fakery. Uh, you know, I, I'm a believer in the Theseus's ship model of the human psyche. I simply am not the person I was when I picked up at a needle at 17 any more than I am the person who put it down again and went into rehab when I was 26. So, you know, I needed to distance myself paradoxically in order to grow closer to the person who, you know, who, who I was then. Uh, and at the same time, the harsh fact of the matter is I didn't clean up when I was 26. I had a couple of years clean from hard drugs and then I was back on them again and back on them for longer for more than another 10 years you know so I can't really paint myself up you know somebody who doesn't get clean till he's nearly 40 he's clearly got a major problem <laughs> yeah yeah do you think there's usefulness in the phrase, many addicts never say I was an addict, but I am an addict? Well, I mean, that's again, you know, what's happened with the anonymous programs in the last 10 or 15 years is they too have become subject to the kind of weird psychic rubric and metric of social media. So, you know, nowadays, lots of celebrities who go to 12-step meetings, the anonymous fellowships, talk about it in public. Uh, I think it's the 10th or 11th tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous is you should always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio and film. But that seems to have gone out the window. And there seems to have been an unholy <laughs> mis... As soon as someone monetized it, it did. Yeah. Well, maybe. I don't know whether they're monetizing it over there. But there's a kind of unholy miscegenation between the kind of selfie culture and the kind of self-obsession that people tend to show even when they're in recovery. So that kind of, you know, all of that is by way of preamble to saying when you say, you know, I don't say I'm an addict, I was an addict, I say I'm still recovering from addiction. That's what people tend to say in the 12-step in the programs in order to indicate their view that addiction is a pathology, is a, a disease in that way. And I don't know. I mean, I, it's not something I would say. I would be inclined to say I had a period of serious addiction to hard drugs, and I'd be inclined to say I'm not involved with drugs in that way at present. That's all. I've heard you say that your writing habit is to 
right soon after you wake up, perhaps fresh from dreams, so as to not be enthralled to your subconscious. But since you're writing a memoir, did that change? No, I think that's just years of discipline and and writing a lot. The mornings, I have to say, (laughs) back in the day, I always used to get up in the morning and write first because I'd be loaded at lunchtime. So I needed to, to get ahead of things. And, you know, I wrote a lot of books during my second period of addiction, and, and that's how I did it. So, you know, the wind changed. I couldn't start any earlier in the day now anyway. But but I think even with this book, there are dreamlike elements to it. And, you know, I think Freud's right. Dreams are wish fulfillment. Creative work is, for the most part, wish fulfillment. And when do we wish most fervently to be other than what we are? Usually first thing in the morning when we open our eyes on on all the shit that we've inherited from the day before. Did you have a rule or set a rule for yourself about how you would represent the thoughts that you were having in the moment? In other words, when the reader reads of uh, Will, this character, Will, in 1986, thinking about this, experiencing that, even perhaps ruminating on William Burroughs or uh, some other aspect of life then, is it important to you that these really were the thoughts you were experiencing then? Or is it just your projection now or when you wrote it of the thoughts you might have been experiencing? Well, absolutely. You cut right to the heart of it. No, a truthful memoir cannot be mere facticity. You know, if I pick up a memoir for a start and somebody says, I did this in in 1979, I think you're a liar immediately because you said I. And as I've pointed out before, I don't think the I I am now is the same as the I I was then. Okay, so how do I reach the thoughts and feelings? Well, actually, I've been a paper maven, despite having a very disorderly and drugged and and drunk life. I've been quite a consistent paper maven, perhaps something to do with being a writer. And, And two or three years ago, I sold my archive to the British Library, who very kindly properly archived all of my material. So in terms of facticity, I could have made this a much more, you know, factual memoir in that way, but I wasn't interested in it. Very early on, you know, maybe this is the insight of somebody who writes largely fiction, I thought, I realized, and maybe this is a bit like kind of 12-step meetings, I realized I could identify with the person I was then. And in identifying with the person I was then, I would feel the emotions. Uh, and and I, I found those emotions really easy to access. I, I could remember how I felt much more than I could remember what I did. And when I remembered how I felt... What I did acquired the correct salience. In other words, I could immediately see what the things that I did were important in terms of adding to the truth of the story. Anyway, suffice to say, my girlfriend throughout that period, you know, wasn't stoned, is a super rememberer, the kind of person who still sends you a card on your birthday 40 or 50 years later. She read the entire memoir in typescript and found only two or three minor factual errors from her point of view. So that was good enough for me. Is the way you feel now different from the way you felt then? Because I hear you now, you're by turns angry and indignant and idealistic, and I I read the strains of all those things. So the question is, has the feeling changed or just what you do with those feelings? Oh, I think the feelings have changed incredibly. A friend of mine, Martin Amos, the writer who read the memoir, wrote to me and said, "Um, isn't it extraordinary how much energy 
you have when you're young, even for the death wish. So the kind of death drive of the young is is like a new car. It's sort of strong and fast in that way. And, And even if I do have moments of nihilism or, you know, being upset now, they are nothing like they were then. They they absolutely tore through me. It felt at the time that, you know, shooting heroin was, was just self-medication for these extraordinary, dizzying fugues of nihilism and, and self-hatred, which I think I've managed to get on the page fairly well, and, and which I, I hasten to say I should imagine a great many people who've had problems with addictive drugs will identify with. I would imagine. Um, one of my observations was I had this thought uh, of the shames involved here, including the human toll, just the fact that this intellect was spent so much on the contemplation of drugs, the thinking about drugs, the obsession with drugs. It was taking so much of the mind, your mind, that could have been doing other things and focusing on this one area. Yeah, maybe, but it's a bit like the line in The Importance of Being Earnest. I can't remember which character, maybe Lady Bracknell, says to one of the the foppish young men, do you smoke? And and he says no, thinking that's the answer she wants. And she says, "Uh, you should. Every young man should have an occupation. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm sorry, and, and doubtless people out there in kind of slate radio land will get upset. But, you know, when I look at my contemporaries, I'm not so sure they achieved anything much more than I did with their preoccupations with being good, solid middle class citizens and making money for the man. I'm not overly impressed by what they got up to either. Well, at least now your rebellion is taking the form of, you know, harrowing commentaries about Brexit. I don't know if they're that harrowing, my comments about Brexit. For me, most of contemporary politics is epiphenomenal to the climate emergency. There are cities bursting into flame at the moment. That's harrowing, by the way. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You have a great felicity for the epigram. In our conversation so far, you've thrown out four or five literary quotes. Your last novel before this, Umbrella, is based on a James Joyce quote. How are you able to recall them so readily? What gives you that capacity, do you imagine? I always used to say I had a better memory for text than I did for life. <laughs> and I, I, I just, I think it's, you know, you're, you're a guy who knows your culture and your reading, and I'm sure you're familiar with the thing that if you read a lot and you process a lot of text, you get certain kinds of ulterior structures and links between it that allow you to pivot from one poorly remembered thing to one thing that may be better remembered. There's this underlying structure of consonance, of congruence, that leads you around in that way. Uh, You know, it's a life misspent between the pages of a book. You know, it's back to Nietzsche again, who said to get up in the morning in the fullness of youth and open a book, that's what I call vicious. My ulterior motive in asking you about epigrams was just to elicit a Nietzsche quote, by the way. Um, so (laughs) So as a writer, though, how do you regard epigrams? Do you ever think to yourself, that is a great line, I will build a paragraph around it? Do you think they just happen? What's your own relationship with them in your own work? 
Oh, that's interesting point. I mean, a few years, well, quite a number of years ago, about 20 years ago, I did a rewrite of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. I was commissioned to write a movie script and I couldn't finish the script. So I just widened the margins, eliminated all the interior <laughs> night, exterior days and uh, turned the uh, stage directions into descriptive prose. And I had a novel. But the interesting thing was, you know, when I analyzed Wilde's novels, I think there was something like 140 epigrams in the picture of Dorian Gray. And obviously, I had to purge the Wildean epigrams and write my own. So I rewrote all of Wilde's epigrams for, as it were, the current day. And what that taught me was exactly the opposite of what you're saying. You know, again, probably people will find this an insufferable thing for me to say. You know, The Picture of Dorian Gray is a great book, but it's not that well written. It very much <laughs> reads like a work that's been based around its epigrams. And that's not the way to go about writing. As you rightly intuit, an epigram must arise quite naturally. To build a paragraph around an epigram, your reader will spot it. Just as a reader can spot when you've over-researched and just want to cram your research in because you did it. Right. It becomes sloganeering at that point. Right. And we've God knows we've got enough of that going on. So the last thing I want to ask you about is, I was always interested in this, and then I heard a commentary you did on your name, Will Self. And my question is, have you noticed, as I did research for you, that in the last two or three years, the name Will Self is largely used in conjunction with Will Self-Driving Cars Overtake the Road? Well, actually, the phrase is, will self-driving cars take my job? Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. I, and I'm actually looking into the engrams of this at the moment because, of course, I've noticed it. I noticed it ages ago. My name was always quite difficult to Google for anyway. You'd always get a lot of stuff was, you know, will my self-obsession destroy my relationship and that sort of thing. But you're right, absolutely right. Will self-driving cars take my job fascinates me because, of course, I view the rise of the obsession with AI as a kind of delusion on the part of contemporary humanity, quite clearly. It's in line with like, with Kurtzweil and all the other transhumanist bullshit. Uh, so the fact that I myself am hidden by this collective obsession with the idea that we can transcend our human limitations seems to me just the sugar on the cake of my weird name, which has dogged me all my lifetime. And as you know, a young man interested in psychology who then read philosophy at university, I've been aware of the curious and ironic appositeness of my name all along. Well, speaking of ironic, Will Self is a shortening of Will Seawolf, so that, of course, has dogged you. <laughs> oh, I see. You're yeah. punning. You're punning. I just reviewed a book on drugs, actually, for The Observer here in London by a woman called Dr. Susie Gage <laughs> and had to point out in the review that it was U.S. slang for marijuana, <laughs> if if a little uh, old-fashioned. <laughs> well, that certainly is the pot calling the kettle black. Okay, we're done. I'm, I, sh I shan't bother you with more terrible puns. It's been a pleasure to hear them. Will Self's new memoir is called Will. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And now the spiel. Just in the interest of fairness and adherence to principles which don't shift based on who is being victimized and who is being valorized, I say I object. I object to one argument the Democrats are making. So robustly pursuing your rights 
even your right to fight a subpoena shouldn't be taken as proof of guilt. Now, surely, let's admit it, foot dragging via subpoena is clearly a Trump tactic. He has used this this tactic in the courts. He's used delay tactics for his business. But still, I don't think this is a fair argument for a prosecutor to make. As a career law enforcement officer, I have never seen anyone take such extreme steps to hide evidence allegedly proving his innocence. That was Val Demings of Florida. That's the proposition that fighting subpoenas or trying to rigorously pursue your rights to try to fight a subpoena and then see what courts say, that that is an indication that you have something to hide is in general improper. I think that's a principle that I adhere to, and therefore I adhere to that principle in this case too. And if there's any question that this is what's going on, here was Representative Jamie Raskin on Chris Hayes' show two days ago. They seem very determined, all of them, to make sure John Bolton doesn't testify. What is your read on that? Well, I think my read is what Tom Paine would say, which is everybody use their common sense. People who are innocent, whose conduct was perfect and absolutely perfect, would want all of the witnesses to come forward. Okay, but having heard that, remember, the Democrats do not want Hunter Biden to come forward. Charles Schumer said so. Sir, would you be open to, say, a a witness trade for Hunter Biden? No, I think that's off the table. First of all, the Republicans have the right to bring in any witness they want. They haven't wanted to. And that trade is is not on the table. Okay, of course, there are legitimate reasons to oppose Hunter Biden's testimony. The most legitimate being it's illegitimate. It's irrelevant. John Bolton, relevant witness. Hunter Biden, irrelevant witness. It ends there. But I'm just pursuing the narrower point. The legitimacy of the Democrats saying that failure to produce a witness is a sign of guilt. Maybe they shouldn't say that so plainly, so starkly when they have Hunter Biden, who they don't want to produce. And I don't think they should produce. Again, you guys understand. I'm just adhering to a principle. And now let me admit something. I believe what I just said. I definitely do. I think it's important to hold both sides accountable. I'm allergic to that one mode of journalism, opinion journalism, that says, okay, who's making the argument? Now that I know that, I get to weigh in on the logic of the argument. I hate it. But I am a little bit of me. I am trying. I am pressing to find something interesting in this whole ordeal to latch on to. And I'm doing this for me and for you, but mostly for me, but maybe because and through me a little bit for you. Because almost all of the arguments raised by Republicans, I mean, literally, I've heard maybe one thing that was slightly interesting or when I cast myself into the mind of a person who is fair minded and hasn't already decided maybe one or two things where you could say, "Okay, I I could see where that would go. I could see where that might land. But other than that, it's all chicanery from the Republicans. And what we've mostly been getting is the arguments from the Democrats, which are solid but known, terribly, terribly known, very much in the record. So we have the obvious versus the poppycock, the petty foggery, as they say. Sorry, I shouldn't have said petty foggery. That would get Thomas Jefferson mad. And I want to make clear, I'm not complaining about the pizzazzlessness of the whole process going back to the hearings in front of the House. Those were called pizzazzless, but those were great. I strongly disagree with that 
description of pizzazzlessness. They had new info. They had firsthand testimony. They had real tension. They had news. They had information. This has none. At best, this has old clips of those good hearings. It lacks a feature that I think is very important to get us to really attend to. And that feature is it's not episodic. It just spools out and goes on forever. Even if a news event is long and boring and has boring speeches and boring parts. And listen, a lot of news events do. A UN General Assembly ain't shit's creek. Davos isn't going to do much business on pay-per-view. But what happens with those news events is they have endpoints. And because they have endpoints and they and because they have distinct start and stops, a talented journalist can go in See what happened in that distinct period, impose some structure and organization, and put forth a digestible news item. And we, the public, who want to be informed, can be informed. And we're not dependent on that news item hitting a certain cycle, the nightly news or the morning papers. I understand it's a 24-hour news cycle, but this event runs athwart the 24-hour news cycle. It never stops. There's no discernible endpoint. Yes, between 1.50 a.m. and sometime around noon, there was less testimony than there usually is. But if I ever try to catch up on what happened, I'm always saying to myself, wait, is this the thing that just ended or the thing that's going on? And it's further complicated by the fact that all they're doing is talking about things that happened in the past via clips that happened in the past, via arguments that they've made in the past. This proceeding, the impeachment trial and likely acquittal of Donald J. Trump, bleeds into the next 14-hour impeachment trial and likely acquittal of Donald J. Trump. We have reached an impossible level of dullness. And I know how. I know how we've gotten there. It's actually not a how. It's a who. And the who is a him. And the him is Mitch. I ask unanimous consent that pursuant to Rule 1 of the Rules and Procedure and Practice, when sitting on impeachment trials, the Secretary of the Senate informed the House of Representatives that the Senate is ready to receive the managers appointed by the House for the purpose of exhibiting articles. Mitch McConnell arranged this. Mitch McConnell orchestrated this. Only it was a kind of orchestra that had maybe one long note held for hours and hours and hours by an oboe. And then maybe a cello played the note for a couple minutes just to placate moderates within the orchestra caucus. Mitch McConnell's superpower is soporificism. He knows how to bore. When others wake up, he bores down on the boring down. He knows he works best under cover of darkness, so he provides the darkness and we all fall asleep. It is him. I blame him. It is intentional. He is beating me. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world it needed some sleep. Mitch, you are that devil. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Priscilla Alabi, who has been near, seen near a glass of milk, but not necessarily affiliated with said milk developing. Daniel Schrader produced The Gist. He'd have gotten this job irregardless of the nepotism involved. The Gist, we are not interested in trading witnesses. Unless one of the witnesses is Zion Williamson on a rookie contract, then we're listening. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening.